This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 3. The Origin of the Myth The inspiration theory of creativity suggests that creativity is a mysterious internal process, roiling and churning inside us, punctuated by flashes of insight that bubble to the surface without warning. In short, creativity, as most of us have come to understand it, is a random gift from God. However, there are two additional elements of the inspiration story. First, that you have to be a traditional, or IQ, genius to be struck by great creative ideas. And second, that it helps to be a little bit neurotic or manic. In other words, creative brilliance is innate. We're born with it, or we aren't. And being a bit different tends to come with it. You will often see this theory highlighted in our entertainment. It was on full-on display in the movie adaptation of Amadeus, which won eight Academy Awards in, eight, in 1985, including Best Picture. Amadeus depicts Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's bristling relationship with Antonio Salieri, who saw himself as Mozart's rival. The movie shows a blindfolded Mozart as a child playing piano flawlessly to kings and popes. It claims that Mozart a prodigy with mesmerizing talent, composed his first concerto at four years old. In the film, Salieri toils relentlessly on his compositions, reworking them again and again. When he discovers that Mozart, now a young man, creates impeccable first drafts with no sign of editing or revisions, he is furious. In one scene, Salieri gazes at a finished Mozart composition, saying, Astounding! It was actually beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music, yet they showed no corrections of any kind. Here again was the very voice of God. Salieri was both awestruck and envious. Divine music seemed to just flow out of Mozart. What's more, Mozart, at least as he was portrayed in the film, was an immature drunk who didn't take himself seriously. Many of us consider Mozart to be the embodiment of the inspiration theory of creativity. Famed movie critic Roger Ebert said that Amadeus's characterization of Mozart was, quote, not a vulgarization of Mozart, but a way of dramatizing that true geniuses rarely take their own work seriously because it comes so easily for them, end quote. The film's portrayal has its origins in a letter written by Mozart that was published in 1815 by a leading German music magazine. The magazine's publisher was an avid fan of and expert on the composer, telling all who would listen stories about how Mozart would compose in his head without the benefit of a piano. In the letter, Mozart explained his composition process, quote, Provided I am not disturbed, my subject enlarges itself, becomes methodized and defined, and the whole, though it be long, stands almost finished and complete in my mind so that I can survey it like a fine picture or a beautiful statue at a glance. Nor do I hear in my imagination the parts successively, but I hear them, as it were, all at once." End quote. This letter became a cornerstone of the mythology that grew around Mozart. The brilliant composer did not toil for his musical ideas. He was handed them by a mysterious higher power. This account, like countless other popular stories that refer to flashes of genius, can be enough to dissuade any aspiring individual who is not convinced they are a genius connected to God to give up his creative efforts. 
If you're not born with a once-in-a-generation gift, you don't stand a chance of making your mark. There is one problem with Mozart's letter, though. It was a forgery. The portrait of Mozart's inspired brilliance came about as a result of an overly ambitious publisher trying to sell magazines. Johann Rocklitz was a German magazine publisher who had a deep reverence for Mozart and published countless letters and anecdotes that were purportedly from or about Mozart. However, later biographers discovered that many of his stories were exaggerated, and some, such as this letter, were wholly fabricated. Nevertheless, the myth took hold. A few hundred years later, this conception of Mozart is still deeply ingrained in our consciousness. In reality, Mozart worked long hours in a highly iterative, back-breaking process. He described the set of string quartets he composed as the, quote, fruit of long and laborious effort, end quote. Mozart would create numerous sketches, the music composer's equivalent of rough drafts, as he worked through the various parts of his compositions. Mozart even used a type of shorthand for drafting that made it easier for him to edit his work. The idea that Mozart composed pieces entirely in his head was also not true. In his actual letters, he makes it very clear that he wrote at a keyboard, as he needed to hear the notes as he was working. Another aspect of the Mozart myth was that he was a child prodigy, born with unprecedented gifts. According to Salieri in Amadeus, Mozart composed his first concertos at the age of four. In reality, the first piano concerto he wrote was at age 11, after years of daily focused practice insisted upon by his father. But these first pieces, it turns out, were not actually original, but they instead were reinterpretations of other songs. His father began training Mozart in music when he was three years old, and Mozart's first truly original concerto was written when he was 17. This may still seem young, but at that point, Mozart had almost 14 years of intense practice behind him. 14 years of long daily practice is not the same as being simply born a world-class composer. Finally, Mozart and Salieri were actually friends. Yes, they sometimes competed for jobs, but outside of friendly competition, they enjoyed each other's companies, composed a piece together, Per la Recupitera, Salute Ophelia, and Salieri was M Mozart's son's music teacher for a time. Mozart, an early standard bearer for the inspiration theory of creativity, was in fact a practitioner of intense and diligent effort. Yet the inspiration theory of creativity shows up not just in pop culture and films, but also in mainstream media and books. The New York Times columnist David Brooks, in a 2016 piece about creativity, argues that, quote, inspiration is not something you can control, end quote. He does not believe it is merely the result of hard work. He says, quote, people who are inspired have lost some agency. They often feel that something is working through them, some greater power than themselves. The Greeks said it was the muses. Others, believers might say that it is God or the Holy Spirit. Others might say it is something mysteriously bursting forth in the unconscious, a new way of seeing, end quote. Brooks suggests that such inspiration is beyond comprehension. This idea that creativity is something somewhat mystical runs rampant throughout Western civilization. Academic researchers seem especially obsessed with the idea that genius is some superior form of humanity. A review of PhD dissertations on the topic of creativity found that 6 out of 10 focused on it as an individual phenomenon. Yet, 
as we'll see, this aspect of the inspiration theory of creativity, too, is a myth. Like Mozart's forged letters, it has been embellished and amplified by critics for hundreds of years. To recap, there are four main elements of this myth. First, it is an individual act, the domain of the soul genius born with these talents. Second, that moments of brilliance come as sudden epiphanies that overtake the creator, such as with the creation of yesterday. Third, that once overtaken by inspiration, success comes easily. Fourth and finally, creative people like Mozart are somewhat mad, neurotic, or manic, and often all three. As you'll see, these ideas are either exaggerated or worse, as with Mozart, made up. But where do these ideas even come from? If they're not true, why have so many come to believe the inspiration myth? And what is the actual truth about creative talent? The History of Creativity Quote, A poet is a light and winged thing, and holy, and never able to compose until he has become inspired, and is beside himself, and reason is no longer with him. End quote. If you believe this is another David Brooks quote, you're only off by a couple thousand years. It's from Plato. Much of our modern perspective on creativity goes all the way back to the early Greeks. Plato considered an artist to be one who imitated the reality that God created. In fact, the word that the Greeks used to describe an artist's work is mimesis, which means to imitate. Plato expanded on this view of artists, saying, These lovely poems are not of man or human workmanship, but are divine and from the gods, and that poets are nothing but interpreters of the gods, each one possessed by the divinity to whom he is in bondage. End quote. Plato and the Greeks provide the historical underpinning for the idea that a creative person is a possessed soul, channeling ideas from the gods. The Latin term for genius meant a spirit that possesses and protects an individual, a concept that transferred over from the Greeks. The Greeks also introduced the idea that artists are different from the rest of us. Plato calls the state that poets enter delirium. Aristotle, too, picks up the same refrain, saying that when mania strikes, quote, many persons become poets, prophets, and sibyls, fortune tellers, and are pretty good poets while they are maniacal, but when cured, can no longer write a verse, end quote. Genius, it seemed, was intertwined with madness. The Greeks, therefore, provided a handful of ideas essential to the inspiration theory of creativity, that artists were divinely inspired and the result of manic spiritual possession. The role of an artist continued to develop throughout the ages. Visiting Medieval Times Today, great artists are heralded in museums and galleries. Auction houses sell famous works for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars. However, in the medieval view of creativity, the artist was merely an imitator, copying God's reality. Accordingly, early Western society viewed artists as mere craftspeople. Over a phone call, Professor Deborah Haynes, who has written numerous art history books, told me that these early artists were ranked in the social order below merchants and only a rung above slaves. There was no concept of a famous artist. Most pieces of art were unsigned. In part, this was because art was typically a collective effort created in workshops. What's more, most of the work artists created was not original. Instead, artists followed strict guidelines by imitating the recurring political and religious art required by churches and civic organizations. 
artists were skilled workers, nothing more divine than that. They would be analogous to today's trained carpenters or bricklayers. But as time went on and European countries prospered through trading, the market for art exploded. A rising class of merchants was eager to spend their wealth and live like kings. Rich noblemen still wanted to decorate their palaces, and churches continued to want awe-inspiring frescoes and sculptures. This increased hunger for art resulted in two significant changes in the Western art world. First, the interest in their work gave artists a small taste of power. Emboldened, they began engaging in collective bargaining. They joined guilds as early forms of unions, which mandated working conditions, tools, costs, and even techniques. These guilds elevated the artists to a higher place in the social pecking order. However, according to Deborah Haynes, as individual artists began to prosper, they began to split off from the guilds and work directly for the new patronage class. The newfound wealth of the patrons and their insatiable desire for art led to the onset of the Italian Renaissance. Very soon there emerged the notion of the artist as an individual. For the first time there were even famous artists, men such as Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. As their work became more coveted, artists pushed for the culture to view them as superior, almost heroic, individuals. The patrons were willing to oblige, and for the first time, established artists were seen as creative geniuses with egos to match. A Pope and a Brothel A Vatican official was aghast as he looked up at the fresco painted by Michelangelo on the altar of the Sistine Chapel. The painting depicted God's final judgment after Jesus' second coming. Yet unlike most religious paintings of the time, many people in this painting were proudly naked. Nude caricatures were not unprecedented, but typically they would be portrayed as somewhat ashamed of their nudity. The Last Judgment is one of the most important works of the Italian Renaissance. Nonetheless, Biagio de Cesena, an aide to the Pope, told people it was a work suited for a wall in a bagnio, or brothel. Michelangelo was incensed by Baggio's criticism. He alone had decided to strip the saints, and he would not be bullied by some bureaucrat. He decided to take revenge by adding a figure to the painting. Biagio, the official portrayed as Minos, the judge of the dead. What's more, in the painting, the figure based on Biagio had a snake wrapped around him not once but twice, symbolizing that he was in the second circle of hell, or where Dante would put the lustful and perverse. In a final rebuke, the snake was painted in such a way that it appeared to be gnawing on Biagio's genitals. Not surprisingly, Biagio was furious. Who did this Michelangelo think he was? Biagio complained directly to the Pope, but the Pope refused to intervene. According to one account, the Pope told Biagio, quote, My authority does not extend into hell, end quote. Michelangelo was demonstrating the newfound power of the celebrity artists, capable of standing up to high-ranking religious officials. This story has been handed down through history, thanks in part to Giorgio Vasari, a writer during the Italian Renaissance who penned one of the first works of art history, an encyclopedia of Italian artists, with brief biographical sketches. It helped to canonize the included artists. In his book, Vasari also defines the Renaissance view of creativity. He explains that while the ancient Greeks saw artists as simply copying God's work, and medieval rulers believed that artists were mere craftsmen, the Renaissance culture believed that artists weren't just copying God, they were actually God-like. Quote, And the master, 
that divine light infused by special grace on, into us, which has not only made us superior to the animals, but, if it be not sin to say it, like to God, end quote. Not only did God create, but artists created things as well. In addition, the Renaissance philosophers, and specifically Vasari, began to establish a link between intelligence and creativity. Whereas earlier thinkers viewed artists as lowly craftspeople, whose job descriptions could best be summarized as imitating, Vasari focuses on the intelligence of great artists. Of one great painter, he writes, quote, Although he applied himself to the art of painting very late, when already grown up, nevertheless, he was so well assisted by nature, which inclined him to this, and by his intelligence, which was very, very beautiful, that soon he produced therein marvelous fruits, end quote. This pervasive thinking led to artists migrating from learning in workshops to studying in prestigious art academies, the first of which was created by Vasari himself with the financial backing of Duke Medici. Not only were artists now fiercely intelligent godlike creators, some artists even improved on reality with their art. The English Renaissance expanded on this line of thinking. The poet Philip Sidney wrote, quote, Nature never set forth the earth in so rich tapestry as diverse poets have done, end quote. However, the artist was still viewed as mad. As Shakespeare wrote, quote, The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact, end quote. Artists had become like gods, albeit somewhat neurotic and manic. If you can rejoice, and you can rejoice if you have ever been described as such. Of Monsters and Men We will each write a ghost story. George Gordon Byron, the 28-year-old famed romantic poet, had cabin fever. Huddled at his lake house, Byron and his friends had spent the summer of 1816 surrounded by rain and darkness thanks to the volcanic eruption, which had turned winter into a 12-month season and the trip to the lakeside had devolved into countless hours stuck inside the house. To kill time, George and his friends had started reading aloud a book of German ghost stories. It was under these conditions that George laid out his challenge that each of them write a ghost story. Among them was 18-year-old Mary, the lover of another cabin guest, Percy. Mary and Percy had run off two years earlier and had been traveling the world. Her parents were both well-known literary giants, but she was still trying to find her way in the world. As she sat beside Percy, she was stumped. What kind of ghost story could she write? Hours turned to days. George and Percy both started piecing together their ghoulish tales. Percy would ask Mary about her progress, but she had nothing. One day she overheard Percy and George talking about a recent scientific finding. A botanist had claimed to observe microscopic animals that continued to move, seemingly after their own deaths. The men talked about the idea of a human corpse coming back to life. With all the scientific advancement of the day, it did not seem impossible. The conversation was all Mary needed to start writing her ghost story, and soon she had a short story completed. Encouraged by the feedback she got, the story eventually grew into a novel that she published anonymously two years later. She named the novel Frankenstein, or Frankenstein. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was only 20 years old when her book was published, yet the young writer had created a gripping tale that has survived for generations. Her story, again, is based on a stereotype of the creative genius, a brilliant scientist who goes mad and uses his expertise to create a monster. 
Shelley was part of the English Romantic movement. The Romantics believed that geniuses were mad and born with an innate talent that allowed them to create paintings, poems, and works of literature. Godlike, but somewhat crazy, they were able to create whole worlds within their paintbrushes and pencils. This idea of the mad genius continued into the Victorian era. In the late 1950s, Charles Darwin published his book titled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, which among other things, led to an effort to understand the scientific and evolutionary roots of creativity and genius. In fact, Victorian scholars wrote numerous books on the scientific origins of the so-called mad genius in books that captured mainstream attention, including Hereditary Genius, Man of Genius, and Insanity of Genius, and seemingly they lacked original titles. The second of these, Man of Genius, published in 1891, sought to prove the interconnection between genius and insanity. The author, Cesar Lombroso, uses tenuous logic, claiming that, quote, the fact, now unquestioned, that certain men of great genius have been insane permits us to presume the existence of a lesser de degree of psychosis in other men of genius, end quote. His evidence is often nonsensical. For example, he highlights that artists are often short and pale. And in what must have been a revelation to him, he adds that geniuses have, quote, a tendency to puns and plays on words, end quote. Where did he think these disturbing traits came from? Hereditary de degeneration, where underfunctioning mental or physical conditions and parents are passed down to their children genetically. According to Lombroso, these inherited traits cause many children to go insane. In others, he said, they cause something perhaps more suspicious, genius. His arguments devolve into being wildly racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic. Lombroso points out that there are many Jewish geniuses. That said, given his belief that genius is a sign of degeneration, this is a 19th century version of a backhanded compliment. In an anti-Semitic rant, he writes, quote, It is curious to note that the Jewish elements in the population furnish four and even six times as many lunatics as the rest of the population, end quote. Ugh. He also argues that women are rarely geniuses, saying, quote, it is an old observation that while thousands of women apply themselves to music for every hundred men, there has not been a single great woman composer, end quote. Rather than acknowledging the lack of opportunity for women, he concludes that women are temperamentally opposed to trying new things, saying, again, quote, women have often stood in the way of progressive movements, <laughs> quote, or end quote. <laughs> guy's so wrong. Clearly, Lombroso was no suffragist, and his arguments continued to degenerate. He claimed that insanity and genius are impacted by both the weather and altitude. Countries, he goes on to say, need a hilly region to give rise to a lot of geniuses. He says, quote, All flat regions, Belgium, Holland, and Egypt, are deficient in men of genius, end quote. Why does Lombroso think a hilly, warm climate is instrumental to insanity and genius? Because to him, while insanity is hereditary, it is catalyzed by diseases such as malaria and leprosy that flourish in temperate climates. These and other sensationalist, sensationalist views of genius were popular during the late 19th century. John Nisbet's The Insanity of Genius came out the same year as Lombroso's book. Both books said that it was the average man who was superior while the genius was overdeveloped in only one skill, be it art or science, and thus deficient. These books are why, 
At the end of the 19th century, genius was viewed by both scientists and the public as an innate hereditary trait that cannot be fostered or amplified other than by getting sick. At the same time, genius became tightly and negatively coupled with insanity and madness. Given that, how did we evolve from that view of creativity to the more worshipful view of genius that we hold today? The IQ of termites. The transformation of genius from a negative into a positive trait started in Johnson County, Indiana, on the Terman family farm in the late 1800s. The farm was large for the region, having some 640 acres in all. Thanks to the success of the farm, the Terman family could afford the best farm equipment that money could buy, as well as an abundance of cows, sheep, chickens, and turkeys. The elder Terman was a collector. He collected land, animals, books, the Termans had almost 200 books in their family library, and children, he had 14. Of all his offspring, his son Louis was particularly special to him. Louis was 10 and the youngest of his sons. He stood out from the others with his shimmering red hair. He also hated sports and outdoor activities. In the evening, you could usually find him holed up, reading. Armed with restless curiosity, Lewis had few outlets in Johnson County other than books. So when a salesman came to the door one night hawking a book on phrenology, Lewis was intrigued. First introduced in Europe in the late 1700s, 1700s, phrenology was a science focusing on the brain's structure and how it affected people's personalities. Phrenologists theorized that certain sections of the brain influenced different traits, and that the size of those sections indicated the strength or the weakness of that trait. Phrenologists claimed to be able to tell whether someone would be a high achiever or lazy and unproductive just by running their hands over the person's skull. While it was often used as a basis for racism, that night it was more like a palm reading. Lewis was mesmerized by the phrenologist's spiel. That evening, the salesman dazzled the family with stories and demonstrations, going around the room and evaluating the skulls of every single family member, predicting their future. When he got to Lewis, the salesman told the young boy that magnificent achievements lay ahead, that he was destined for success. Without even knowing it, this door-to-door -door salesman set in motion a series of events that would change how the world understands genius. Lewis Terman gained two things that evening, self-confidence and a keen interest in personality differences. He began to wonder why some people, like himself, were destined for great things and others were not. His life seemed to bear out the phrenologist's prophecy. He bounded through school, skipping grades and impressing teachers. While most of his peers were stuck working the fields and tending to livestock, Lewis took a different route. Thanks to the financial support of his parents, he was able to continue his education, attending Indiana University and enrolling in a psychology PhD program at Clark University in Massachusetts. His dissertation topic focused on evaluating the mental and physical abilities of smart and dull children. In the early 1900s, society viewed smart children with suspicion or even disdain. This was partially a result of the mad genius literature from the late 1800s. Intelligent people and geniuses were widely regarded as poorly adjusted and fraught with anxiety. Turman believed that testing and study could prove otherwise. Before long, he had become one of the early researchers in the emerging field of psychology. He landed a job at Stanford University, where the fascination with intelligence only grew. 
It was here that he first heard about the first IQ test, designed by Alfred Benet in France, which was designed to identify students with learning and development disabilities. Terman, though, had a different idea. What if you used the Binet test to assess for genius? Terman set out to Americanize the content of Binet's test and standardize the scores so that 100 would be the median result. Working with the team at Stanford, he named his version of the test the Stanford-Binet test. Like the phrenologist from his childhood, Terman believed that genius was inherited and could, and in fact must, be measured in order to advance humanity. To nurture innate talent, you must first know who had it. In 1916, believing that everyone should be tested, Terman wrote The Measurement of Intelligence, a book that concluded with an IQ test that readers could take at home in less than an hour. That book made Terman an academic celebrity. Yet despite his fame, it took World War I to make IQ testing mainstream, when the U.S. Army agreed to test the IQs of all 1.7 million draftees. For the first time, intelligence testing became accepted in America. But there was a dark side to Terman's testing. Like many academics of his era, Terman was a believer in eugenics, a practice of trying to improve a population through forced sterilizations, abortions, or worse, against people as society views as lesser. He wanted to prove that the intelligent were well-adjusted and that society should be mostly concerned with the people who lacked smarts, not those who had it. To that end, he supported the sterilization of the feeble-minded, a desire that tragically became law in some U.S. states like North Carolina, which led to the forced sterilization of some people based on their low IQ test results. On his quest to prove the, superior, the superiority of the intelligent, Terman decided that he would track a group of children over the course of their lives. His reasoning was this. How would the lives of students with high IQs unfold? Would they be normal, successful, or would the Victorian image of the neurotic mad genius be true? So, in 1921, he assembled a group of 1,521 young geniuses through testing and the nomination of their teachers. Those tested had an IQ over 135. In somewhat of an awkward play on Terman's name, these students became known as termites. For the rest of their lives, to this day in fact, they received studies every five to ten years to assess their progress in life. Terman's hypothesis was that if he was able to identify and track the lives of high IQ individuals starting at a young age, he would most likely see two distinct things. First, that they would be well-adjusted and free of anxiety and second, that they would enjoy tremendous success throughout their lives. In fact, the study found something totally different. While Terman did find that geniuses were well-adjusted, the rates of alcoholism, suicide, and divorce fell into the normal range, they were surprisingly average as well on a different measure, their success. Yes, a few termites became prominent, but no one achieved groundbreaking success or won the Nobel Prize or became a household name. In fact, two future Nobel Prize winners were tested by Terman as children and did not reach the genius benchmark. In 1968, after Terman's death, one of his protégés sought to evaluate how the termites were doing at the halfway point of their professional careers. She compared the hundred termites who had achieved the greatest professional success in their careers against the others who had in her perspective, seemingly stumbled working at blue-collar jobs like carpentry and as retail clerks. 
Did the low achievers have a much lower IQ? In fact, the difference in IQ between the two groups was immaterial. Where they differed was in those characteristics attributed to nurture. The successful group had more confidence, persistence, and early parental encouragement. Terman's assumptions about intelligence were completely off base. A high IQ did not lead to greater success. That being said, his successful evangelism on behalf of the IQ test did demonstrate one thing, that people with high IQs were normal and well-adjusted. Terman succeeded in helping change the perception of genius to being a positive attribute. This is a quick path version of the path that has led to today's version of the inspiration theory of creativity, the idea that creativity results from a mysterious internal process punctuated by random flashes of inspiration. Today we may still see geniuses often as neurotic, think of Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, but they are no longer seen as dangerous or deserving of castigation. Today, genius is seen as something to be celebrated. But if Terman's study showed that IQ and creativity are not tied together, then where does creative talent come from? Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.